One interesting view of class in Britain just before the outbreak of World War One. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the first half of Jean's book Howard End by E.M. Forster, published in 1910. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together I'll split the book into two equal halves. On the second Friday of the month I'll share my thoughts and yours hopefully on the first half of the book, maybe make a few predictions and when we finish reading the book I'll publish part two of the podcast in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month, the 24th of June. We'll decide whether it's a book we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible then you can listen to the book or you can do neither of course and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you but be aware there may be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Maybe you have thoughts you want to express about the book that I've missed or there's something you agree or really disagree with. I'd love to share your experiences in the next episode and if you're enjoying the podcast I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review so that others will be able to find it. Thanks very much and welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to chapter 21. The novel opens with Helen writing a letter to her sister Meg about staying with the Wilcoxes at their house Howard's End, alongside the Wilcoxes' son Charles and soon-to-arrive son Paul and their daughter Evie. Her last letter simply declares, quote, Paul and I are in love, the younger son who only came here Wednesday. Helen shows that she sympathises with suffrage but isn't experienced or knowledgeable enough yet to have a strong argument with Mr Wilcox. Quote, My argument was knocked to pieces and like all people who are really strong, Mr Wilcox did it without hurting me. Meg, or Margaret as she's sometimes called, tells her aunt Julie Munt about how the two sisters met the Wilcoxes on holiday in Europe. They're flying, and this is the 1910s, so they must be quite wealthy. There's a lovely description of Aunt Julie's London home. Quote, The house was in Wickham Place and fairly quiet, for a lofty promontory of buildings separated it from the main thoroughfare. One had the sense of a backwater, or rather of an estuary, whose waters flowed in from the invisible sea and ebbed into a profound silence while the waves without were still beating. Though the promontory consisted of flats expensive with cavernous entrance halls full of concierges and palms, it fulfilled its purpose and gained for the older houses opposite a certain measure of peace. These two would be swept away in time and another promontory would arise upon their site as humanity piled itself higher and higher on the precious soil of London. Margaret says that the German restoration of the Speyer Cathedral was, quote, too thorough and there is a prejudiced opinion in quote, German thoroughness. More on that later. The girls' names are Schlegel, hinting at their German ancestry. But Aunt Julie says the girls are, quote, English to the backbone, whatever that means. Aunt Julie wants to, quote, assess the family, the Wilcoxes, for herself. Basically, she's a bit of a snob. But Meg refuses. However, her brother, Tibby, is unwell, so she agrees that Aunt Julie should go to look into the relationship. But when Meg gets home, a telegram from Helen says that it's, quote, all over. Now, I'm sure at this point that Aunt Julie is going to cause mayhem. This wonderful description of London train stations is fabulous. Have a listen to this. It's very Harry Potter, 
platforms nine and three quarters being a gateway to the world of magic. Listen to this. Quote, like many others who have lived long in a great capital, she has strong feelings about the various railway termini. They are our gates to the glorious and the unknown. Through them, we pass out into adventure and sunshine. To them, alas, we return. In Paddington, all Cornwall is latent and the remoter west, down the inclines of Liverpool Street, lie Fenlands and the illimitable broads. Scotland is through the pylons of Euston, Wessex behind the poised chaos of Waterloo. Their mother died when Tibby was born and their father died five years later. We follow Aunt Julie to Howard's End. She amusingly keeps forgetting the house name. She is met by young Paul Wilcox, who she thinks is the lover at the station. He's very, quote, self-possessed, which slightly intimidates Mrs. Mutt. It appears that Paul knows nothing of Helen's love for him, which is now over. It seems she's about to put her foot in it and start blabbing it against Margaret's strict instructions. And then there's this wonderful evocation of driving through an untarred village. This must have only been possible for a brief period of time in the early 20th century. Quote, He turned round in his seat and contemplated the cloud of dust that they had raised in their passage through the village. It was settling again, but not all into the road from which he had taken it. Some of it had percolated through the open windows. Some had whitened the roses and gooseberries on the wayside gardens, while a certain proportion had entered the lungs of the villagers. I wonder when they'll learn wisdom and tar the roads, was his comment. In a wonderful comic reversal, she blurts out that she is there to discuss their relationship, but it transpires that he is not Paul, but Charles, the older brother. And Mrs. Munton has really put her foot in it here, and she feels very embarrassed. Quote, she stammered, getting blood red in the face, wishing she'd never been born. Charles is also engaged, and Aunt Julie feels anger when Charles comments on their relationship with, quote, the idiot, the idiot, the little fool. She says, quote, I am not inclined to sit still while she throws herself away on those who will not appreciate her. She assumes the Wilcox are not worthy of Helen. What hypocrisy. The narrator confirms this with the comment, quote, esprit de classe was strong in Mrs. Munt. She sat quivering while... A member of the lower orders deposited a funnel next to a roll of oilcloth, and they're in a hardware store. When they arrive at Howard's End, Aunt Julie bursts into tears when Helen says, quote, It's all off, please don't mention it. Mrs. Wilcox smooths things over and tells a surprised Charles that the engagement is over between Helen and Paul. There's a wonderful description of how Helen fell in love with the Wilcox family before she even met Paul. Quote, before Paul arrived, she had, as it were, been tuned up into his key. The energy of the Wilcoxes had fascinated her, had created new images of beauty in her responsive mind. To be all day with them in the open air, to sleep at night under their roof, had seemed the supreme joy of life and had led to that abandonment of personality that is a possible prelude to love. She had liked giving in to Mr Wilcox or Evie or Charles. She had liked being told that her notions of life were sheltered or academic, that equality was nonsense, votes for women nonsense, socialism nonsense, art and literature, except when conducive to strengthening the character, nonsense. One by one the Schlegel fetishes had been overthrown and though professing to defend them, she had rejoiced. When Mr Wilcox said that one sound man of business did more good to the world than a dozen of your social reformers, she had swallowed the curious assertion without a gasp and had leant back luxuriously among the cushions of his motor car. When Charles said, why be so polite to servants? They don't understand it. 
she had not given the Schlegel retort of, if they don't understand it, I do. No, she had vowed to be less polite to servants in the future. I'm swathed in cant, she thought, and it is good for me to be stripped of it. This leads to a kiss under the witch elm with Paul. But the next day, coming down to breakfast, she sees Paul and... Quote, when I saw all the others so placid and Paul mad with terror in case I said the wrong thing, I felt for a moment that the whole Wilcox family was a fraud, just a wallpaper of newspapers and motorcars and golf clubs, and that if it fell, I should find nothing behind it but panic and emptiness. The sisters surmise that Mrs Wilcox must have overheard their professing of love because she knows about it. And there is a history of how their father came to England from Germany. The narrator is quite impartial about Germans, and more on that later. Their father, Ernst, has this wonderful philosophy of imagination versus materiality, and I see it as a symmetry with Helen's idea of personal relationships versus the apparatus around personal relationships that she talks about. Listen to this on Germans. Uncle Ernst says, Germans only care about the things that you can use and therefore arrange them in the following order. Money, supremely useful. Intellect, rather useful. Imagination, of no use at all. Your pan-Germanism is no more imaginative than is our imperialism over here. It is the vice of a vulgar mind to be thrilled by bigness, to think that a thousand square miles are a thousand times more wonderful than one square mile, and that a million square miles are almost the same as heaven. That is not imagination. No, it kills it. When their poets over here try to celebrate bigness, they are dead at once, and naturally... Your poets too are dying, your philosophers, your musicians to whom Europe has listened for 200 years, gone, gone with the little courts that nurtured them, gone with Esterhaz and Weimar, what, what's that, your universities? Oh yes, you have learned men who collect more facts than do the learned men of England. They collect facts and facts and empires of facts, but which of them will rekindle the light within? I've written in the margins here, is that a sort of comment on great novels that take up little room but are greater than cathedrals? discuss. Anyway, the sisters Tibby, Aunt and the German cousins go to a concert of Beethoven's Fifth. Their reactions to the music are very different. Quote, Helen said to her aunt, now comes the wonderful movement, first of all the goblins and then a trio of elephants dancing and Tibby implored the company generally to look out for the transitional passage on the drum. Their reactions to the music are very different, as I said. Tibby is very analytical, versed in counterpoint, whereas Helen makes up a story and personifies the music. A great insight into their characters. Helen seems like a true romantic by her reactions to the music. After the Beethoven, Helen inadvertently takes a young man's umbrella. The young man and Margaret get chatting. They discuss classical music in great detail. Margaret complains how Helen compares art to music. Quote, what is the good of the arts if they're interchangeable? And then Margaret blames Wagner. And there seems to be a battle in the concert hall. The Germans didn't stay to listen to the Elgar, and now Margaret is attacking Wagner. What next? World War I? Question mark. Discuss. The man goes to Wickham Place to pick up the umbrella, but then flees as soon as possible. Mrs Munt is rather pleased, thinking he may steal something, but Margaret is ashamed and says, quote, Yes, I think the Apostle Spoons could have gone as rent. That's what they're worried he might steal, said Margaret. Seeing that her aunt did not understand, she added, You remember rent? It was one of father's words. Rent the ideal to his own faith in human nature. You remember how he would trust strangers, and if they fooled him, he would say, It's better to be fooled than to be suspicious. That the confidence trick is the work of man, but the want of confidence trick is the work of the devil. 
I remember something of the sort now, said Mrs Munt, rather tartly, for she longed to add, it was lucky that your father married a wife with money, but this was unkind, and she contented herself with, why, he must have stolen the little Ricketts picture as well. Better that he had, said Helen stoutly. No, I agree with Aunt Julie, said Margaret. I'd rather mistrust people than lose my little Ricketts. There are limits. They complained that Tibby, quote, as a man, should have persuaded him to stay... Quote, for that little incident had impressed the three women more than might be supposed. It remained as a goblin footfall, as a hint that all is not for the best in the best of all possible worlds, and that beneath these superstructures of wealth and art, there wanders an ill-fed boy who has recovered his umbrella indeed, but who has left no address behind him and no name. There's Voltaire's Candide reference, and this narrator is trying to impress us with his or her knowledge of art and literature, music and culture. I find it at the moment all a bit hammy and disingenuous. It's forced to trying to do something for the war effort, but in art, there seems to be a battle between English and German culture in this book so far. What do you think? Leonard Bass, the owner of the umbrella, is finally introduced to us by name after 15 pages. Are the lower classes really that unimportant that it takes 15 pages to name him by name? And he is poor, but he's not very poor. We see his little flat described and he breaks a photo of Jackie and then she appears on the stairs. This is his wife. She's not much of a conversationist. Leonard feels he's above her. He thinks of Wickham Place. Quote, they had all passed up that narrow, rich staircase at Wickham Place to some ample room, whither he would never follow them, not if he read for ten hours a day. Oh, it was no good, this continual aspiration. Some are born cultured, the rest had better go in for whatever comes easy. To see life steadily and to see it whole was not for the likes of him. The Wilcoxes, coincidentally, move into Wickham Mansions, a bit of an ironic name because they're actually flats opposite the Schlegels. It causes Aunt Julie to speculate on whether a relationship between Helen and Paul will be rekindled. Helen's going to stay with Frieda in Stetten in Germany. Now, is it a coincidence that the Wilcoxes are there? Is Helen covertly writing to Paul? Unlikely, but it does seem a bit of a coincidence. Margaret writes a letter to Mrs Wilcox saying that their acquaintance should be called off because of the Helen Paul situation. Mrs Wilcox replies that it is not an issue because Paul has gone to Nigeria and Margaret visits Mrs Wilcox to apologise. She finds out that the flat actually belongs to a cousin of Mr Wilcox and that Charles, the elder son, is married to Dolly Fossil, hence the renting in London to facilitate the marriage. They're honeymooning in Naples. Mrs Wilcox says that she was born in Howard's End and she and Margaret seem to build a good rapport. Margaret throws a dinner party for Mrs Wilcox and they talk about Stettin. Margaret compares it to music, which is all rather hammy. And Mrs Wilcox listens on as Margaret talks like an intellectual about the continent, art and beauty. Mrs Wilcox says, quote, she is happy not to have the vote and that, quote, sometimes it is wiser to leave action and discussion to men. She's a very strange character. Is she a foil for Margaret's liberalism, just to make the book more rounded? Forster doesn't seem to have a view on suffrage thus far. Is it me, or is Forster on the fence about absolutely everything? Discuss. I'm probably wrong, but it does seem that way. Then we have the following quote about Mrs Wilcox. Substitute intimacy for opinion, and you'll get my thoughts about this narrator. 
Quote, several days passed. Was Mrs Wilcox one of the unsatisfactory people, there are many of them, who dangle intimacy and then withdraw it? They evoke our interests and affections and keep the life of the spirit dawdling round them. Then they withdraw. When physical passion is involved, there is a definite name for such behaviour, flirting. And if carried far enough, it is punishable by law. But no law, not public opinion even, punishes those who coquette with friendship though the dull ache that they inflict, the sense of misdirected effort and exhaustion may be as intolerable. Was she one of these? Isn't it torturous, but I do love it, really. They go Christmas shopping together. Margaret tells Mrs Wilcox that their home, Wickham Place, will have to be vacated when their lease expires in two or three years. She's horrified and invites her to Howard's End, but Margaret declines because of the, quote, inclement weather. This is seen as a snub, and Margaret is regretful, so she follows Mrs Wilcox to the train station, unseen. Mrs Wilcox does see her and is happy, but then her husband and daughter appear and Margaret is kind of ignored. They all go back to Wickham Place and Wickham Mansions together. Suddenly, we, the reader, are thrown into a funeral scene. Slowly, we realise... It's for Mrs Wilcox. And I'm really heartbroken. I was really looking forward to getting to know this character and it was very unexpected. She was a wonderful woman and Mr Wilcox grieves a lot. A bombshell is dropped when they receive a note in Mrs Wilcox's handwriting saying that she wants to leave Howard's End to Miss Schlegel, Margaret. They begin to think suspiciously of Margaret Schlegel but agree that she wasn't to know of the bequest. Charles does not come across well in this chapter. He is upset that Howard's End could be given to a, quote, German cosmopolitan. Margaret doesn't know of the bequest and is thankful for a small silver vinaigrette given to her from Mrs Wilcox's estate. There are some lovely descriptions from Helen on her stay in Germany. And Tibby goes to Oxford. Time passes. Margaret encourages Tibby to think of his future, in particular work, and more on that later. Helen comes in excited that she was approached by a, quote, Mrs Lanoline, who was missing her husband. And Margaret hopes that her new home won't be near people of, quote, this sort. Quote, she feared fantastically that her own little flock might be moving into turmoil and squalor, into nearer contact with such episodes as these. Mrs. Lanline had risen out of the abyss like a faint smell, a goblin footfall telling of a life where love and hatred had both decayed. In a few days, they are paid a visit by a Mr. Lanline. He turns out to be Leonard Bast. He became lost, more on that later. He tries to be cultured by quoting book titles, but the sisters want, quote, authenticity and ask him to recount his own adventure. Tibby, quote, knew that this fellow would never attain to poetry and did not want to hear him trying. Such snobbery. Cultural snobbery. Jackie, his wife, suspected him of going to Wickham Place when he went missing. In fact, he was going for an overnight walk to have an authentic experience. The Schlegel sisters are quite jealous of his story. Quote, That the Schlegels had not thought him foolish became a permanent joy. He was at his best when he thought of them. It buoyed him as he journeyed home beneath fading heavens. Somehow the barriers of wealth had fallen and there had been, he could not phrase it, a general assertion of the wonder of the world. My conviction, says the mystic, gains infinitely the moment another soul will believe in it. And they had agreed that there was something beyond life's daily grey. He took off his top hat and smoothed it thoughtfully. He had hitherto supposed the unknown to be books, literature, clever conversation, culture. One raised oneself by study and got upsized with the world. But in that quick interchange, a new light dawned. Was that something walking in the dark among the suburban hills?
The sisters go to a speaking society where they discuss the make-believe scenario of a rich person in their death and how best the money should be given. On the journey home, the sisters discuss the poor and that if the money is the warp of the world, what is the woof? Margaret says, it's very much what one chooses. And for Mrs Wilcox, it was Howard's end. They bump into Mr Wilcox. He tells them they're renting out Wickham Place. He also says that Leonard Bass's employer is about to go under and that he should find a new job. The sisters resolve to tell Leonard. And I'm thinking the sisters are rather patronising towards Leonard, especially when they debate him as an example of the poor that needs charity in their debate. Leonard comes over and the narrator makes general assumptions. Quote, he was not an Italian, still less a Frenchman, in whose blood there runs the very spirit of persiflage and of gracious repartee. His wit was the Cockney's, it opened no doors into imagination. And the narrator goes on to explain what Margaret and Helen mean to him. Quote, they were romance, and so was the room to which he had at last penetrated, with the queer sketches of people bathing upon its walls, and so were the very teacups, with their delicate borders of wild strawberries, but he would not let romance interfere with his life. There was the devil to pay then. Then they tried to warn him of his company about to go under. That, remember, was information from Mr Wilcox, but he feels patronised by the girls. Quite right. Mr Wilcox and Evie come over and he leaves. The Schlegels think he's a romantic. Quote, his brain is filled with the husks of culture. Horrible. We want him to wash out his brain and go to the real thing. The Wilcoxes are less romantic, more cynical in their outlook, and expect Leonard was having an affair, not tramping through London, removing the, quote, greyness from life. Helen seems to be falling a little bit for Mr Bast in my opinion. Anyway, Margaret prepares to leave Wickham Place. She's desperately looking for somewhere else. Evie Wilcox invites her to lunch and she meets Mr Wilcox there. She tells of her predicament. And now let's not forget that Mrs Wilcox left Howard's end to her. What will Mr Wilcox say? I predict nothing. Mr Wilcox says that they can rent their home in Ducey Street. I was right. Margaret suspects Mr Wilcox may be attempting to court her. And this would appease his hidden guilt of not giving Margaret Howard's end, especially if they marry. He shows her round Juicy Street and then proposes. Then we go into some beautiful descriptions of the Isle of Purbeck where Helen is staying with Aunt Julie. Margaret tells Helen she's been proposed to by Mr Wilcox. And Margaret says, quote, Your love is romance, she's talking to Helen, mine will be prose. She concedes that her love for Mr Wilcox is not romantic. And when Mr Wilcox visits Margaret in Swanage, she does agree to the marriage. And that brings us to halfway. So the questions. Will the truth of Mrs Wilcox's desire to give Margaret Howard's end come out? And what ramifications will there be? Will the more idealistic Schlegels and the more practical Wilcoxes create a difficult marriage for Henry and Margaret? Henry is now called Mr. Henry is Mr. Wilcox. Will Leonard Bast leave his not-so-friendly wife and perhaps even settle down with Helen? And could Forster allow this class leap in his novel? And will Helen approve of the marriage over time? She's pretty sceptical at the end of that first half. There were some very interesting ideas to come out of the novel, which I would like to go through. I kind of noted them down as I was reading. First one, suffrage. Helen clearly wants to argue for suffrage, but she doesn't have the tools yet. 
Quote, Mr. Wilcox says the most horrid things about women's suffrage so nicely, and when I said I believed in equality, he just folded his arms and gave me such a setting down as I've never had. Meg, shall we ever learn to talk less? I never felt so ashamed of myself in my life. I couldn't point to a time when men had been equal, nor even to a time when the wish to be equal had made them happier in other ways. I couldn't say a word. I had just picked up the notion that equality is good from some book, probably from poetry or you. Anyhow, it's been knocked into pieces, and like all people, who are really strong, Mr Wilcox did it without hurting me. That was in the initial letter to Meg from Helen. And with regard to politics generally, the sisters, quote, care deeply about politics, though not as politicians would have us care. They desire that public life should mirror whatever is good in life within. Temperance, tolerance and sexual equality were intelligible cries to them, whereas they did not follow our forward policy in Tibet with the keen attention that it merits, and would at times dismiss the whole British Empire with a puzzled, if reverent, sigh. Not out of them are the shows of history erected. The world would be a grey, bloodless place were it entirely composed of Miss Schlegels. But the world being what it is, perhaps they shine out in it like stars. This is pre-World War I. I wish we'd listened to thoughts such as theirs. Another idea is about Germany, Germans and general Germanness. Margaret and Aunt Julie refer to Germans as, quote, too thorough and that sometimes, quote, this will not do. And the narrator is not impartial and casts sweeping generalisations where Germanness is concerned. Have a listen to this. Quote, Their sister's father had been not the aggressive German, so dear to the English journalist, nor the domestic German, so dear to the English wit. If one classed him at all, it would be as the countryman of Hegel and Kant, as the idealist, inclined to be dreamy, whose imperialism was the imperialism of the air. Forster seems to be keen to show a battle between English and German culture. The Germans didn't stay to listen to Elgar, and Margaret blames Helen's understanding of music on Wagner. What do you think? Am I stretching that idea too far? When the note comes through giving Howard's end to Margaret Schlegel, Charles shows his xenophobia. Listen to this. Quote, She's a cosmopolitan, said Charles, looking at his watch. I admit I'm rather down on cosmopolitans. My fault, doubtless. I cannot stand them. And a German cosmopolitan is the limit. I had to note this down. The 1910 idea that it's a man that makes a woman happy. Aunt Julie says... Quote, what do you think of the Wilcoxes? Are they our sort? Are they likely people? Could they appreciate Helen, who is, to my mind, a very special sort of person? Do they care about literature and art? That is most important when you come to think of it. Literature and art, most important. How old would the son be? She says, younger son. Would he be in a position to marry? Is he likely to make Helen happy? I just find it very interesting, this early 1900 view of the different sexes and how they operate in society. Obviously, class is a very big theme in this novel. Mrs. Munt's love of esprit de classe, and we have her thoughts on the, quote, lower orders. Her class consciousness may also lead her to make assumptions about people. She mistook Paul for Charles and then became angry for being deceived. And the narrator talks of, quote, young ladies called Jackie, again making sweeping generalisations, anxious and hungry, and... Quote, it is only you and I who will be fastidious. The narrator is such a snob and invites us to be snobby alongside him. What do you think? I'm sure that's unfair. Look at how Mr Wilcox describes giving the vote to the lower classes. He says, quote, and these are the men to whom we give the vote. 
There's also a little bit on religion. Margaret spurns organised religion. She says, quote, any human being lies nearer to the unseen than any organisation. And from this, she never varied. She certainly thinks that Mr Bast had a religious experience going on his wander around London. Money and wealth is a very important idea, I think. Paul believes he has no, quote, money to marry Helen. The relationship between money and marriage seems so antiquated and outdated now. Margaret is appalled when she suspects Leonard thinks they are robbing him. Quote, Then the four serious songs rang shallow in Margaret's ears. Brahms, for all his grumbling and grizzling, had never guessed what it felt like to be suspected of stealing an umbrella. For this fool of a young man thought that she and Helen and Tibby had been playing the confidence trick on him, and that if he gave his address, they would break into his room some midnight or other and steal his walking stick too. Most ladies would have laughed, but Margaret really minded, for it gave her a glimpse into squalor. To trust people is a luxury in which only the wealthy can indulge. The poor cannot afford it. Margaret understands that she is privileged in having money. Quote, and this is Margaret talking, We ought to remember when we are tempted to criticise others that we are standing on these islands and that most of the others are down below the surface of the sea. The poor cannot always reach those whom they want to love and they can hardly ever escape from those whom they love no longer. We rich can. She goes on, I'm tired of these rich people who pretend to be poor and think it shows a nice mind to ignore the piles of money that keep their feet above the waves. I stand each year upon £600 and Helen upon the same and Tibby will stand upon eight and as fast as our pounds crumble away into the sea they are renewed from the sea, yes, from the sea and all our thoughts are the thoughts of 600 pounders and all our speeches and because we don't want to steal umbrellas ourselves we forget that below the sea people do want to steal them and do steal them sometimes there's the idea of personal relations versus the apparatus around personal relationships that Forster brings up which is quite interesting the sisters are shocked that a marriage proposal can lead to such anger and telegrams Margaret says to her sister, quote, The truth is that there is a great outer life that you and I have never touched, a life in which telegrams and anger count. Personal relations that we think supreme are not supreme there. There, love means marriage settlements, death, death duties. So far, I'm clear, but here's my difficulty. This outer life, though obviously horrid, often seems the real one. There's grit in it. It does breed character. Do personal relations lead to sloppiness in the end? Helen says, Oh Meg, that's what I felt, only not so clearly, when the Wilcoxes were so competent and seemed to have their hands on all the ropes. And Margaret says, Don't you feel it now? Helen says, I remember Paul at breakfast. I shall never forget him. He had nothing to fall back upon. I know that personal relations are the real life forever and ever. And remember how Paul was worried that he didn't have money. This is yet more apparatus around personal relationships. Later, they have a conflict over the inner and the outer life, which is related. Helen says, quote, When I came down to breakfast and saw that Paul was frightened, the man who loved me frightened and all his paraphernalia fallen, so that I knew it was impossible, because personal relations are the important thing for ever and ever, and not this outer life of telegrams and anger. And Meg says that's foolish in the first place. I disagree about the outer life. Well, we've often argued that. The real point is that there is the widest gulf between my lovemaking and yours. Yours was romance, mine will be prose. I'm not running it down, a very good kind of prose, but well considered well thought out for instance i know all mr wilcox's faults he's afraid of emotion he cares too much about success too little about the past his sympathy lacks poetry and so isn't sympathy really i'd even say she looked at the shining lagoons that spiritually he's not as honest as i am doesn't that satisfy you 
No, it doesn't, said Helen. It makes me feel worse and worse. You must be mad. Margaret made a movement of irritation. I don't intend him or any man or any woman to be all my life. Good heavens, no. There are heaps of things in me that he doesn't and shall never understand. Another interesting idea is the narrator's concern with population. Cheap flats. And the narrator seems obsessed with them. And the idea of humanity piling up. We've got a number of examples of that. Quote, Though the promontory consisted of flats expensive with cavernous entrance halls full of concierges and palms, it fulfilled its purpose and gained for the older houses opposite a certain measure of peace. These two would be swept away in time as another promontory would arise upon their site as humanity piled itself higher and higher on the precious soil of London. And then later in the novel... Quote, a block of flats constructed with extreme cheapness towered on either hand. Further down the road, two more blocks were being built, and beyond these, an old house was being demolished to accommodate another pair. It was the kind of scene that may be observed all over London, whatever the locality, bricks and mortar rising and falling with the restlessness of the water in a fountain, as the city receives more and more men upon her soil. It's interesting that the negative idea seems to contradict Mr. Schlegel's thoughts on bigness. Quote, it is the vice of a vulgar mind to be thrilled by bigness. I'd love to know if Forster lived in a mansion or a flat. Interestingly, Mr. Cunningham, who's of a similar class to Mr. Bast, the lower class, is very concerned with the declining population in Manchester. It's almost as if population equals progress in the minds of the lower classes. Mrs. Munt certainly doesn't like flats and what they represent. Quote, they took away that old world look. They cut off the sun. Flats house a flashy type of person. What a snob. And when Margaret says Wickham Place is to be torn down so that flats can be built, Mrs Wilcox says, but how horrible. And Margaret says, landlords are horrible. And Mrs Wilcox replies with, can civilization be right if people mayn't die in the room where they were born? Related to this is the idea of proprietorship. As Margaret prepares to leave Wickham Place, the narrator reflects that, quote, the age of property holds bitter moments even for a proprietor. When a move is imminent, furniture becomes ridiculous and Margaret now lay awake at nights wondering where, where on earth then all their belongings would be deposited in September next. Chairs, tables, pictures, books that had rumbled down to them through the generations must rumble forward again like a slide of rubbish to which she longed to give the final push and send it toppling into the sea. But there were all their father's books. They never read them, but they were their father's and must be kept. There was the marble-topped chiffonier. Their mother had set store by it. They could not remember why. Round every knob and cushion in the house, sentiment gathered. A sentiment that was at times personal, but more often a faint piety to the dead. A prolongation of rites that might have ended at the grave. There's some interesting ideas on culture. The narrator states that the acquisition of culture can take generations. Quote, Leonard listened to it with reverence. He felt that he was being done good to and that if he kept on with Ruskin and the Queen's Hall concerts and some pictures by Watts, he would one day push his head out of the grey waters and see the universe. He believed in sudden conversion, a belief which may be right, but which is peculiarly attracted to a half-baked mind. It is the basis of much popular religion. In the domain of business, it dominates the stock exchange and becomes that bit of luck by which all successes and failures are explained. If only I had a bit of luck, the whole thing would come straight. He's got a most magnificent place down at Streatham and 20 HP fit, but then, mind you, he's had luck. I'm sorry the wife's so late, but she never has any luck over catching trains. 
Leonard was superior to these people. He did believe in effort and in a steady preparation for the change that he desired. But of a heritage that may expand gradually, he had no conception. He hoped to come to culture suddenly, much as the revivalist hopes to come to Jesus. Those Miss Schlegels had come to it. They had done the trick. Their hands were upon the ropes once and for all. And there's a symmetry here with his dwelling place. Quote, It was an amorous and not unpleasant little hole when the curtains were drawn and the lights turned on and the gas stove unlit, but it struck that shallow makeshift note that is so often heard in the modern dwelling place. It had been too easily gained and could be relinquished too easily. Just like the narrator's thoughts on culture. Is the narrator saying that culture is inaccessible to a lower-class person? It hasn't run through his generations. What do you think? That's what it seems to be to me. There's a comparison here with perhaps the nouveau riche. You can't just buy aristocracy and culture. Leonard thinks culture is not of his reach. Quote, they had all passed up that narrow rich staircase at Wickham Place to some ample room, whither he would never follow them, not if he read for ten hours a day. Oh, it was no good, this continual aspiration. Some are born cultured, the rest had better go in for whatever comes easy, to see life steadily and to see it whole was not for the likes of him. Now, I don't think the author actually thinks that, but I just think that people like Leonard Bass maybe do think that about themselves that the idea that culture comes through generations of culture. Margaret is of the belief that culture is almost something in the DNA and cannot be taught or acquired. When describing Leonard Bast, she thinks he's a, quote, a young man, colourless, toneless, who had already the mournful eyes above a drooping moustache that are so common in London and that haunt some streets of the city like accusing presences. One guessed him as the third generation, grandson to the shepherd or ploughboy, whom civilization had sucked into the town, as one of the thousands who have lost the life of the body and failed to reach the life of the spirit. Hints of robustness survived in him, more than a hint of primitive good looks, and Margaret, noting the spine that might have been straight and the chest that might have broadened, wondered whether it paid to give up the glory of the animal for a tailcoat and a couple of ideas. Culture had worked in her own case, but during the last few weeks she had doubted whether it humanised the majority. So wide and so widening is the gulf that stretches between the natural and the philosophic man, so many the good chaps who are wrecked in trying to cross it. She knew this type very well, the vague aspirations, the mental dishonesty, the familiarity with the outsides of books. She knew the very tones in which he would address her. The fact that the narrator also held these views makes me think it could be Forster's misguided view. Discuss. What do you think? Again, culture being innate rather than acquired and the symmetry with wealth and disregard of the nouveau riche. But then after Bass's walk, we do have this wonderful view of culture as a step into the unknown. Quote, he had hitherto supposed the unknown to be books, literature, clever conversation, culture. One raised oneself by study and got upsides with the world. But in that quick interchange, a new light dawned. Was that something walking in the dark among the suburban hills? Another idea is the idea of socialism. The sisters go to a socialist discussion group where they talk of how best money can be distributed to the poor. Mr Wilcox has a rather different view of socialism. He says to Margaret... Quote, if wealth was divided up equally, in a few years there would be rich and poor again, just the same. The hard-working man would come to the top, the wastrel sink to the bottom. And then Margaret says, everyone admits that. 
And Mr. Wilcox says, your socialists don't. And Margaret responds with, my socialists do. Yours mayn't, but I strongly suspect yours of not being socialists, but nine pins, which you have constructed for your own amusement. I can't imagine any living creature who would bowl over quite so easily. And the narrator responds with, he would have resented this had she not been a woman. But women may say anything. It was one of his holiest beliefs. There's quite an interesting comment on work in the book. Margaret says to Tibby, quote, I believe that in the last century men have developed the desire for work and they must not starve it. It's a new desire. It goes with a great deal that's bad, but in itself it's good. And I hope that for women too, not to work will soon become as shocking as not to be married. It was a hundred years ago. What an incredible change of opinion in the last century. The pole star functions as quite an important symbol for Leonard's loss of the real world and his link to nature in the city. Quote, I lost it entirely. First of all, the street lamps, then the trees. Is this a comment on taking people out of their natural, uncultured environments that they might become de-anchored and lost? Just one final idea that I thought was really interesting was the idea of history and the Greek response to it. Quote, Margaret realised the chaotic nature of our daily life and its difference from the orderly sequence that has been fabricated by historians. Actual life is full of false clues and signposts that lead nowhere. With infinite effort, we nerve ourselves for a crisis that never comes. The most successful career must show a waste of strength that might have removed the mountains. And the most unsuccessful is not that of the man who is taken unprepared, but of him who is prepared and is never taken. On a tragedy of that kind, our national morality is duly silent. It assumes that preparation against danger is in itself a good, and that men, like nations, are the better for staggering through life fully armed. The tragedy of preparedness has scarcely been handled, save by the Greeks. Life is indeed dangerous, but not in the way morality would have us believe. It is indeed unmanageable, but the essence of it is not a battle. It is unmanageable because it is a romance, and its essence is romantic beauty. Margaret hoped that for the future she would be less cautious, not more cautious, than she had been in the past. What ideas did you draw out for the book? I would love to hear your comments. Do email me at bookshook at yahoo.com. I'd now like to share some of your thoughts on last month's book, The Animals in That Country. There were some wonderful comments on the web and on Goodreads. Ali McCudden on Goodreads said, it's a good premise, good start to the book, but unfortunately it was downhill from there for me. I struggled with the writing style once the animals started talking and I got confused with the plot at points. Not really any likeable characters, which is normally fine for me. But in this instance, where it is a survival story, I genuinely did not care what happened to our main cast. And Bridget on Goodreads said, one of the most interesting and engrossing books I've read in ages. A virus which enables the victims to understand animals, their thoughts and voices. Sounds cool, but it properly isn't. Their quest for food, the way that they think about us humans, it is horrible and fascinating. This is Jean's stories. She's always drunk a little bit, overstepping her boundaries, employer of the wild animal park which her daughter manages. She takes care of Kim, her granddaughter. She has a casual relationship based on booze with one of the other staff. Her world is about the relationships she has with Kim and the animals she feeds. She loves the dingo matriarch, and this will be what ultimately saves her. Her rotten son puts her in the most terrible position. He takes Kim and Jean has to find her. It is a quest which will almost drive her to the brink of sanity. Gosh, I loved it. It was so interesting. A dystopia that shakes the genre all about. Jean is fabulous. She is a gnarly soul. She loves so deeply and she is such a pain. I was invested from the very first lines. 
Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Email bookshook at yahoo.com or leave a comment at the Bookshook YouTube channel. I also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for, for a while which you haven't got around to reading and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books after I publish part two of Howard's End in two weeks, that's the 24th of June, July's podcast will all be about Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. So get that one at the ready if you can. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the final part of Howard's End in two weeks. See you then. Mm-hmm.